Well, yeah, Dan's worried about somebody's going to be disappointed uh, in heaven. Um, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think so. I, I think the whole point of the, the reverse of the curse means that whatever is in store for us, it will be wonderful beyond words. Be wonderful beyond words. So whether you're going to paint or counsel or teach or make things with your hands, that will be part of our task in heaven. The main thing is, the main thing is that in so doing, we will be reigning. We will be doing God's will. We will be giving God the glory. So I, I got interrupted with the artist. Okay, so the artist comes into heaven and says, I can't wait to paint it. And the, uh, the guide says, well, why paint it? You can see it now. Well, th that's a good answer for the person who says, I got to do what I got to do. In other words, it's all about me. I want the painting to glorify me. But when you paint in heaven, there, there'll be no mixed motive. It's not, I want to do it, make money. I want to do it for my fulfillment, but it's going to glorify God. Now, that just puts everything in a different perspective, does it not? It just, we, we will, our labor will be fruitful. Our labor will be to the glory of God. Our labor will be fulfilling for ourselves. There'll be satisfaction in it without pride. Um, so maybe I've said enough. Okay, so that's a good thing to dwell on. Yes, Bob. No, okay, Bob wants to know about, well, well, we know from another passage that there'll be no more marriage or given in marriage. Uh, now that, I, I really don't want to go too deeply into this because I know that inevitably you're going to run up the question about, well, what if I was married twice? What if I was married three times? Spouses die, things happen. And I just so that we don't get into problems, there's not going to be marriage in heaven. There will not be that kind of belonging that we are used to now. And maybe I've said enough about that. Unless somebody else, no, I won't open that up. Okay. Okay. All right. The other phrase that I want to pay attention to, and it's such a suggestive phrase, you know, so you've got the throne of God, the Lamb, and his bond sovereigns shall serve him, and they shall see his face. So I just had to do this. I went in my phone, and I looked up all of the verses in which the word face occurs. Hundreds. And I was surprised to see the number of times where face meant surface, the face of the earth. But we're interested now in, in our face. So we said, that, so when we look at the scriptures, I, I have a whole bunch of references here. I'm just going to go, go down them quickly, but they'll bring to mind what you already know. All right? So by the sweater of your face, you will labor. Okay? So the first reference to face is a negative one. Cain says, from your face I shall be hidden. He's going to get the mark of Cain. So from the beginning, part of the curse is the fact that we don't see God's face. As Adam and Eve must have seen whatever they saw, 
when God walked with them in the garden. And we're not quite sure what that was. All right? But then almost right away, Jacob says, I have seen God face to face. His penile experience. So on the one hand, we're cut off from God's face. We're expelled from the garden. The cherubim won't let us back in. We don't have access to the tree of life. And then lo and behold, one of the first characters in the Bible says, I've seen God face to face. In Exodus 3, the uh, burning bush passage, Moses said, uh, Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Now we, that means that that theophonic, uh, that theophany, that appearance of God was, he, he couldn't take it. It was too much for him to take in. But then in, in Exodus 33, verse 11, the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So you have these um, images, and we know that to be face to face is to be intimate. You're, George Bush said he wanted to look into Putin's eyes. Well, I wouldn't want to look into Putin's eyes, but he, that face to face he thought it would reveal something. And so uh, we have that. In Numbers, the great Old Testament benediction, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Not the blessing that you want uh, uh, throughout life is the Lord's face to shine upon you. Um, in Deuteronomy, there are lots of passages about face, and it all has to do with turning away God's face. Why? Because of sin. If you break my law, I will turn my face away from you. Passage after passage in Deuteronomy. Then there's the great passage in, in Job. I know that my Redeemer lives. And I assume that that's because he, he saw something that could give him the confidence to say that. And then Psalms is just filled with it. Lift up your face. Hide, my, hide not your face from me. I seek your face every day. And David's great prayer, when he asks for forgiveness, he says, take not thy presence from me. So that intimacy is broken when we sin. Well, let's look at the New Testament. Just a couple passages. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. This is a very interesting passage. Um, in fact, I want to read it because... It's, it's got some things in it that I hadn't thought about before. I talked with Pam about it this morning, and we, we, we got all tangled up in it, but uh, it, it's a very interesting thought. First uh, Corinthians 13, you know that's the love chapter, and he says in verse 11, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, and reason as a child, but when I became a man, I did away with childish things. All right, we all understand that. We've all matured. We've gotten beyond childhood. But then there's this wonderful verse. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now that's the part we all remember. We, we look in, a, you know, when you go underwater in a Mississippi River, you don't see much. You know, it's like looking in a glass darkly. You're, it, it's all cloudy. It's mucky. But instead of that, we're going to see face to face. And then Paul adds this, now I know in part, but then I shall know fully just as I also have been fully known. 
So it's not just about God, our knowing God, it's God knowing us. So God's knowledge of us is total. Read Psalm 139. Over and over again, God knows your thoughts, God knows where you're going to go, when you get up, when you sit down, and so forth. So, so we're used to thinking about uh, God knowing us in a complete sense. You know, but you would even say, you know, uh, how much do I really know my spouse? Well, not completely, the way that God knows your spouse completely. But then, how much do we know about ourselves? Known as also I am known. So there are some people that that's their vocation. Tom um, has helped people know themselves. Barb Martin has helped people know themselves. So the more you come to know about yourself, the more you can live the kind of productive life and be productive. So I think that that the notion of seeing God face to face and known as also I am known and we can't wait to, to know God as he will make us capable of knowing, although we will never fully know him because his depths are so much greater than our mind can take in. But we will see him face to face. It was a, it, it's just a remarkable promise uh, and then he adds to it, verse 4, and his name, we see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Well, that takes us back a long way. Deuteronomy 6, teach your children. Uh, teach your children and put them, teach them my law and put them on your forehead and on your hands. And so they had these little frontlets hanging down on their forehead be as a reminder that they wanted to know God. And they put it on their hands because they wanted to serve God. That, that was the whole point of Deuteronomy 6, uh, 6 through 8. Um, you, you have the fact, and, and this is not the first time that we've seen forehead, in, in the book of Revelation. Uh, in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, uh, verse 1, And I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. So we've already had a foreshadowing of this. In, uh, and then also in chapter 7 of uh, Revelation, um, verse 3, uh, this is in the context of the Four, the seven seals. Um, no, it's after the seven seals. But anyway, after the se after the seven seals in, in, are completed in chapter six, in verse seven, in verse three of chapter seven, it says, "Do not harm the earth, of the sea or the trees, until we have sealed the bond servants of our God on their foreheads." So to have. God sealing us is to have him on our foreheads. So that, again, pointing at the fact of knowing God. So the, the angels were not to destroy anything until the 144,000 are sealed. And they're sealed because they have the Holy Spirit. And it's in the Holy Spirit's completeness. Uh, until they are totally safe. That's what it means to be sealed. Um, 
So, uh, just a remarkable passage, and we've hardly ex exhausted it here, but it certainly gives us uh, room for meditation and reflection. How well do I know myself? How well do I know others? How well do I know God? And how do those things all interact? How does my knowing you and having interaction with you, what does that tell me about you, but what does it also because you're new, unique, and I'm learning something about you, I'm learning so, about something about God when I see God in you, when I confront you. And uh, that's what friendships are for. Friendships are for that kind of interaction in which we open up ourselves because God opens up our hearts, and therefore we can know one another without being embarrassed. Now, of course, there will be some things that we'll never reveal because we don't want to, and it would be wrong for us to reveal them. Um, so those are my reflections uh, on that. Good. Okay, let's move on. Next paragraph, chapter 22, verses 6 and 7. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord... The God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. All right, now there are two things going on here. The first, and we, we, we could be tempted to overlook the first, because it, the more intriguing passage is what does it mean that Jesus is coming quickly? That, that's, that's going to take some thinking about. But we ought not to forget these first words. These words are faithful and true. Uh, John was told that in a previous chapter. I think it was chapter uh, 20. I, I don't have it marked down here. But uh, what does that remind us of? That in the meantime, between the time when John gives this prophecy and when that prophecy is fulfilled, there's a certainty about it. There's an absolute truthness about it. So that our minds can work to understand it to give us confidence. Not only to increase our knowledge, but to give us confidence not only in what we do know, but in what we believe. And faith is different from, belief, from, uh, from knowledge. Uh, as we learn from Hebrews 11. So, um, we, we ought constantly remind ourselves that God's word is authoritative, it's sufficient, it's complete, it's clear, it's reliable, and all of those things should give us confidence that no matter what we have read in this book, it's true. It's not, John is not speculating here. John is not creating this out of his own mind. Uh, John is using his language skills to speak about what God has shown him. So, the confidence that we have when we read, no matter what chapter you read in the book of Revelation, it's true. It's true. And it either has happened or it's going to happen. Because there's no plan B for God. 
So it's, it's certain. So let's not forget that. Now, let's turn to the harder question. What does it mean? And by the way, I want you to look at the passage. Seven times in chapters 21 and 22, the word words appears. It's here in verse 6. The words are faithful and true. In verse 7, uh, blessed uh, is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Then you go down to verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy. And then down in verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophets. If anyone adds to them, uh, God shall add the plagues. And then in verse 19, and it, if anyone takes away from the words of the book, uh, I will take away from the tree of life. Words are important. Words reveal. Words are authentic, true, clear, faithful. So that's a great truth. You can place your trust in God's word. All right, now this, this, this I think we can do it. So it says this must shortly take place. The, the, the angel said to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. In verse 7, it's quickly. I'm coming quickly. In verse 10, uh, for the time is near. And in verse 20, yes, I am coming quickly. So what does it mean that Jesus is coming quickly and that that coming is near? Well, whoa. All of a sudden, the preterist view of uh, Revelation seems to make some sense. The preterist view is the, the book of Revelation was fulfilled either in the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD or by the time the Roman Empire falls in 476. So the preterist view is that the book of Revelation reads, writes about things that have already happened. Um, I don't think that's true. So what, what's the alternative? Okay, The alternative is what we've been saying all along, that it's, it's either the pre-mill, the ah-mill, or the post-mill position with regard to when things will be fulfilled. So what does it mean that Jesus uh, comes quickly, that it's near? Well, interestingly enough, this is the bookend that fulfills Revelation 1. Revelation 1 begins with the idea that things are near. Revelation 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave uh, him to show to his bondservants the thing which must shortly take place. So, I've come to the conclusion that this is not talking about the second coming. That's the, our, we immediately jump to the fact this is the second coming, and therefore, if you take it literally, uh, we have to do something with the fact that it didn't come quickly. And, and what does that mean? Well, we know that a thousand days and years in, in God's time and so forth. So there's that explanation. But I think the better explanation is, I'm coming quickly, Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. John is going back to chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the churches. What did John say in the letters to the churches? Well, he commended them for their good things, and he judged them for their bad things. And the point is, he has already, he said, I'm going to take away your lampstand if you're not obedient. I'm going to come. 
I'm going to take away your lampstand. And we know there is no church in parts of Turkey. That lampstand was taken away. So that's, uh, so the, the, there are judgments. If we believe, this is the view that I've presented in class, that the kingdom of God came with Jesus. If the kingdom of God came, came with Jesus, that was the inauguration of the kingdom. There will be a consummation. So eventually this passage does mean that Jesus is coming. But in the meantime, churches beware. Churches, I'm coming to discipline you. I'm coming to reward you. I'm coming to bless you. So the, the, the whole point of, uh, of this passage then is to reiterate something that goes back to the very beginning of the book. But it's also true of us today. He, he comes to judge his people. He's not reserving that just for the end times when the ultimate judgment will be made. But there are churches and individuals that, that God brings judgment upon. There are people and groups upon which God sends enormous blessings. That it's all part of his people. See, this has to do with his people. This doesn't have to do with the non-believer. Other passages in Revelation have to do with the non-believer. These have to do with you and me and John's contemporaries in the, in the first century. Um, so, so the idea of his coming, well, that's connected with his face. That there's a sense in which, I, I wanted to read, I'm glad I didn't read the passage before, but let's connect something with the face as well. What does John say in uh, uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2? We are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, he, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then put that together with 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face are beholding the true glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So glory is the total transformation. Sanctification is the gradual trans, uh, transformation. So we are, in a way, seeing God's face now as his presence becomes more evident in us and through us. So that we can, we can say that we see God's work when we see people ministering to us. When Ed comes over and, and helps me because I can't get up on a ladder, I'm seeing God at work through him. When I, when I talk to some of you and, and you point up something in the Bible that I had never seen before, I'm seeing something it's the process of being transformed from one degree of glory to another. We all benefit from that, don't we? We all learn from one another. And we learn from our experiences and we learn from face to face. And so I just wanted to close on that notion that this shortly, he's already doing it. He did it in the first century. He came. He this, he did it in the 5th century, he did it in the 16th century, he did it in the 18th century, and he's doing it now in the 21st century. Praise God that, that he is doing that 
and ministering in such a way that we are blessed by one another and we are certainly fulfilling that numbers benediction. Now may, the, now may uh, God's face rest upon you. There we go. I just forgot the exact words, but you, you remember it. So that's and any any thoughts in closing? Yes. Who yeah, who are we reigning over? Snooky wants to go. Well, I, I think you're gonna have your own tribe. <laughs> no. it, it says we shall sit on the twelve thrones of Israel and we shall reign, we shall judge them. I I wish I could I, what I'm sure of is that it doesn't mean we're just going to sit and watch. Because that, that's what we think of kings. They sit and they watch. But we remember that when kings sit and watch, they also make a decision. Their purpose is to render judgment. So we usually think of kings as people who lead people in battle. But the main purpose of a king is to make sure that his realm is just, to render justice. And that's why his throne is a throne of righteousness. It's a throne of justice. So I don't know what there is to, to, to declare justice to answer Snooky's question, but we're going to do it. It, it, it. We will not be inactive. That's the key. We won't be in, inert. Well, the, you're exactly right. The judgment has already occurred, and so there's a sense... How do we how do we draw from that? You're exactly right. The